I wanted to speak with you today about the divine genius of Genesis. Now, I don't know if you are participating with us in the Bible reading challenge, but if you are today, you are finishing up with Genesis. And as we've been going through the book of Genesis as a church, um, and I see because of it, I believe, I've noticed the amount of conversations being had during the week among the church family. Everybody's talking about everything we're currently reading because some of it's pretty shocking, wouldn't you say? Yeah. yeah. And uh, you, you, this is the reason why, folks. Oftentimes, people don't realize, but the unregenerate heart can have a zeal for God as long as he misunderstands who God is. The Apostle Paul had a zeal for God before knowing God personally and, and knowing Christ. He had a zeal for God, but it was without knowledge of who God truly is. The unregenerate heart can have a zeal for God as long as it's without understanding, as long as he misunderstands God. The unregenerate, unregenerate heart can understand God, but cannot like him or love him, but has to hate him. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who actually are not offended in me. That's why when you read through the Bible, you go, wait a minute, this is not the Jesus of my Sunday school class. <laughs> this is sometimes a different Jesus than I, than I grew up with. But if you are not currently participating in a Bible reading challenge, I really want to encourage you to jump in. And if you have fallen behind, do not attempt to catch up. Just jump right back into where we are at uh, on the day of. You see, the way this works is that you will get another opportunity next year to do a more thorough reading through the same, <laughs> the same schedule. Because I can tell you right now, reading the Bible is like having a meal. You don't say, like, no, no, I don't have to have a meal. I had one a couple of days ago. That's not the way it works. You get into the Word every day, and uh, this will be a wonderful exercise for you to do every single year. Because every time you go through Genesis, you're going to learn so much more. Amen? So today I would like for us to look into Genesis and see some fascinating things about this book that we have just studied. First, we see that Genesis was written 1,450 years before Jesus. This book relates to the beginning of almost everything. The universe, the beginning of life, the beginning of mankind. The beginning of the Sabbath, God rested on the seventh day. The beginning of marriage, the beginning of sin, death, family, redemption, prophecy, sacrifice. Genesis covers every aspect of our Christianity, even as we see it in the New Testament. It covers the creation, the fall of man, the spread of civilization, the flood. It covers Abraham, the call of Abraham, the choice in Abraham. It covers the promises of the coming Messiah. Jesus came to fulfill all that Moses had written. Genesis is, appro is appropriately named the seed plot of the Bible. The seed plot of the Bible. Because in Genesis, just about every major doctrine in Scripture is initiated in seed form. Today I would like, us to, sh I'd like to show you nine times the author of Genesis showed that he knew the beginning from the end. Here we are in Genesis, in the very beginning, and you can see as you read through Genesis that whoever wrote it understood the end. 
But not just did he fix the end, he also determined the means unto that end. Somebody goes, well, if God ordains all things, why must I pray? Because he gives you an opportunity to participate in his means unto that end. You see? Yes, the whole world doesn't depend on you. <laughs> Some people think that God really needs them. Now, the aseity of God says He doesn't need you, He doesn't depend on you, but He invites you into what He is anyway going to do, and you get to do it with Him. You see, your faith in Christ saves you eternity, eternally, but your faithfulness to Christ rewards you eternally. He gives you this opportunity to pray for the lost that He's going to save. And He has chosen in His wisdom to make your prayers a means unto that end and then reward you for it. Isn't that wonderful? And as we look at how the author of Genesis showed that he knew the end from the beginning or the beginning from the end, and in so doing, we will also lay a foundation uh, of understanding the doctrines of Genesis. So first, what I want to show you, and this is just going to be a tour de force through Genesis or through the doctrines of Genesis. And the first is that in Genesis, we have an introduction to the Trinity. The Trinity. Now, the, the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible anyway, but it's very evident. It's a word we use to point to something that is true in Scriptures. The Trinity. The Bible says in Genesis 1.26, the author of Genesis writes, God speaking, let us, plural, make man in our plural image. And so showing the plurality of the Godhead. Number two, in Genesis, you will have read the doctrine of man and his relation to God because there it is where it's introduced. I want to explain something here that's, that we don't talk, a lot, talk about enough, but we should talk about it more. As man is introduced, he's introduced as God's creation. We are a creation of God. This is where Islam really has a hard time understanding who Jesus is because they believe Jesus was, is a created being, therefore he cannot be God because they do see the difference between creator, creation. And they go, well, Jesus cannot be divine because he was created. Therefore, he cannot be equal to God. However, we are today facing a ideological leviathan in our day and age, in our culture, and it's called secular humanism. Secular humanism and paganism, both those ideologies are in stark contrast against Genesis. I want to show you this way that we as a country on, are said to be a Christian nation, but truthfully, we have moved beyond Christian. We are now post-Christian. We are now in a secular humanist society which is the precursor to what? To paganism. And so we are flowing down that stream. How many of you know, if you think back to the culture, when, when, you, know, when you were in elementary school, what was, the, what was the world like? 
You didn't have an idea of the word transgender. What in the world could that possibly even mean? Transgender? Ridiculous. You know, uh, you remember that back in the day, even in shows, when they had a husband and a wife, when they were videoed, they, they had to be in two beds, right? Two separate beds in the same room. That's what the culture used to be like because it was very Christian at the time. But today, we are much more into what's now known as secular humanism. Secular humanism, and I want to explain it to you, is where we find ourselves, and it's the idea that those who are part of this, this ideology of secular humanist, they will believe that God is dead. Comes from very influential philosophers that claimed God is dead. What were they saying by saying God is dead? Well, in stating that, they meant that man is now autonomous and man is now self-determining. He is now the creator of his own world. God is dead, we now create. That means man now creates himself, he creates the world he desires to live in, if he wants to have his own truth, guess what? He can come up with his own truth. He can have it if he wants it. He's autonomous. He's self-determining. He's a secular humanist. God is dead. I decide. If he wants to have his own God, then he can create his own God, or better still, he can worship himself if that's what he wants to do. If you can't find a God worthy of worship, well, what's wrong with me? <laughs> if he wants to be the opposite gender, then all he has to do is identify as it. He is the creator of his own world. He's a secular humanist because God is dead and he is not God. There's no creator. He is the creator of his own fate. He literally believes that God is no longer a necessary thought. Rather, what truly matters is belief in self. What matters is to have self-worth, is to have self-confidence, to have self-esteem, to have self-help, to have self-love. He believes in the creation of self. That is called secular humanism. Now, you hear what I just said there very, very regularly from pulpits. Because secular humanism has crept into the church. That's why the church is at the place where they believe they can choose whatever they want. They can even choose eternity if they want it. Secular humanism. Well, the natural flow from secular humanism throughout history, you will always see this, is paganism. Paganism is knocking on our doors family. I'm no prophet. Trust me. I, if I was a prophet, I would have told you it was going to snow today. I had no idea. I don't even believe the weathermen anymore. <laughs> but I have lost all hope in modern prophets. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know paganism is knocking on our door. Paganism is different from secularism, humanist secularists. 
Paganism, on the other hand, believes God is in everything. They hug trees. They fight for the climate. Because God is in everything. The whales have to be saved. The plants, the trees. This is paganism. Why? Because God lives in everything. And that man is, in fact, one with everything. Dust, dust, stardust, stardust. We are one with everything. And since we are one with everything and God is in everything, we are therefore, you got it, God. Paganism. Man elevates himself to divine status. Now, according to Scripture, and, and let me just quickly say that this is not foreign or alien to the pulpit. You know many, including Copeland, who teaches that you are little gods. Completely misinterpreting the Scripture, takes one verse out of context, builds an entire, entire uh, theology around the idea that ye are gods. Well... According to Scripture, man is not the creator. He is the creature. And there's a divide between creator-creature. You see, you, creature, may not take vengeance. He says, vengeance is mine. You see, vengeance is not bad. It's, not you. it's just not yours. It's God's. Yeah, a lot of things God can do, the creator can do, you cannot do. He can kill, you should not kill. People go like, who does he think he is that he would kill so many things in Genesis? He's God. He's creator. We are creature. We are the pot. We are the clay. He's the potter. And we all go like, how dare you? <laughs> so according to Scripture, man is not the creator. He's the creature. And there's a very clear line drawn between creator and creature. And according to Scripture, man is the creature. God alone is God. There is no one like Him. There is none before Him. There will never be any like Him, the Scripture says. He is the uncreated creator who sits outside of His creation from eternity past to eternity future, needing no one, relying on nothing. He is the fountain of life itself. He actually gives it. Because that's who He is. He is the self-existing. And everything that is comes and flows from Him. Not only does it flow from Him, but He upholds all things. The big problem we have in church today is that nobody actually really knows who God is. They think He is like them. That's why they measure things about God as if it was them. Somebody says, well, if I was God, I wouldn't just do it. I wouldn't do it that way. That seems, that seems narcissistic. God is most loving when He reveals Himself to you because in His revealing of Himself to you is when you are redeemed from the corruption of the world, sin and wickedness. That's why He reveals Himself to you. He does so not because He needs you to admire Him, you need to admire Him. It's for your benefit that you admire Him. 
You are freed from sin and corruption by hallowing His name. So we see here in Genesis, man is introduced as creation, not as part of the creator. We see man is shown to be the sinful being and falls from God's grace because of his sin. And as we walk through Genesis, <coughs> when we look at the human race throughout Genesis, starting with Adam and Eve, <coughs> excuse me, straight off to Adam and Eve's sins, guess what? There's Cain killing his brother, uh, there's Cain killing his brother Abel. Then we see the moral rot during Noah's time. We see Noah's sinful sons. We see Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see the daughters of Lot makes him drunk and so they can sleep with him and have offspring from their own father. I mean, the list goes on. We just read through where Judah, by the way, from whom Jesus comes, goes and thinks he's taken a prostitute. Meantime, it's his daughter-in-law pretending to be a prostitute in order to have offspring from her father. I mean, the list goes on. It is just crazy, don't you think? Somebody goes, what am I reading? Why am I reading this to my children? We got little Gia sitting at the table. What? Andre says, and he went into her. The kids are like, what? Do you mean by, don't worry, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> I want to say this. Two things. The Bible doesn't condone everything it records. Second thing we have to understand is that Total depravity is the most verifiable Bible doctrine amongst all doctrines. Just to see the depravity of man. So we conclude that the most verifiable doctrine is the doctrine of total depravity. But later man is brought back to God when Noah finds favor in the sight of God. In Genesis 6 verse 8, Noah finds favor in the sight of God. Then we see later on, we see Noah walking with God. So here we have Adam and Eve completely fallen. We have this disastrous time with all the generations, just sin upon sin. He even floods the whole world. He's so sick of it. And then we see, um, but God had favor on Noah. And Noah walked with God at Genesis 6 verse 9. And then we see later in, it says that in James 2 verse 23, that Abraham was shown to be a friend of God. From creation to fallen sinners. From fallen sinner to finding favor with God. Finding favor with God, man is then back, invited back as a friend of God. From creation to the fall to redemption to restoration. Write all of that gospel outline in the book of Genesis. Number three, we see that in Genesis, Satan's strategy is revealed. We are introduced to him, and his strategy is shown. See, the Bible says we are not ignorant of his devices because we see it in Genesis. The enemy deals in deception. As we see him deceive Eve, he still works in the same way. 
He calls into question the work of God, the word of God. He, call, he, he projects doubt over God's character. He questions God's integrity. His end game is for you to question what God has commanded and for you to question what God has promised. That is Satan's deceptive work in your life. Number four, we see in Genesis the doctrine of God's unconditional election. The doctrine of God's unconditional election. You see, we see that God chooses Abraham from an adulterous people and makes him the father of the chosen nation, Israel. And then we see that God is not willing to change who He has chosen. Um, that is why He will not settle for the promised child Isaac to come through Hagar. Remember? Sarah couldn't have a child. So Sarah says, why don't you have Hagar? And so he goes and he has a child with Hagar, Ishmael. But God would not settle for that. Why? Because he insists that Isaac, the promised son, the chosen one, would be born from the chosen mother, Sarah, and no one else. God's choice is very specific, and he will not, he will not settle for anything else. We see God passes by Ishmael, and he chooses Isaac. So we see in Genesis that God is a choosing God and He will have nothing else. He will have His purposes established. Number five, we see that in Genesis the gospel is introduced. Actually, we can take all here and talk about how the gospel comes, surfaces throughout the book of Genesis. But I want to show you this, that after God finds Adam and Eve naked and ashamed in the garden, He then clothes them himself. But what does he use? He uses animal skin. To use animal skin means an animal must have had been slaughtered. Blood must have been shed. An innocent beast had to have been slain to cover the nakedness and shame of the actual guilty one. Here is where we see the doctrine of substitutionary atonement introduced. This is the gospel preached right there. The moment sin took place, a death, something needed to die. A death was inevitable. Then we see number six in Genesis, we see the doctrine of justification by faith is introduced. The doctrine of justification by faith and faith alone. It says of Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 6, <clears throat> And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, God, accounted to Abraham it as righteousness. Watch this. Abraham believed not so much in God, but believed Him. This is the sin of modern Christianity. Oh, I believe in Him. What he said... Repent. Well, I don't believe him. <laughs> I believe in him. And I'm saved. No, no. Abraham believed God. And it was accounted unto him as righteousness. When you open up the word of God, do you argue or do you believe? <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? I mean, people literally believe that since they can just say, I have faith in Christ, I am therefore saved. The question is, do you believe him? When he says, be holy for I am holy. 
Do you believe him when he calls you to repent? Do you believe him? In other words, do you believe the words of Scripture? You see, Abraham believed God. But watch this. Abraham, it wasn't that Abraham obeyed God. It wasn't that Abraham loved God. It wasn't that Abraham served God. But Abraham believed God. And it was accounted unto him as righteousness. And you and I, we also see that. If righteousness was counted unto Abraham, that would mean that he had none of, none of his own. If it was given him, it means he didn't have it. Are you, are you following what I'm saying? In our salvation process, we bring nothing to the table except for the sin that made salvation necessary. That's the only thing that you bring to the table when it comes to your salvation. Your only contribution is not like, oh, you know what, I, I, okay, forget that. Let me keep moving. The only thing that you bring to the table and that you contribute to your salvation is your sin that made it necessary to be saved. That's all you brought. Because if you brought anything other than that, your wisdom, your moral high ground, your accurate you know, choices that you make. In, now, if you bring any of that, it's no longer grace. It's now payment for your good choice you made. You see what I'm saying? It's no longer mercy upon you. It's like, all right, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reward you. You see, the moment you're looking for reward, mercy is no longer part of the conversation. <laughs> mercy is no longer mercy if you need to do anything to get it. Right? So we see that justification by faith has been introduced. This is called the doctrine of justification by faith and faith alone. Number seven, we also see that in Genesis, the doctrine of the incarnation is given as a promise. The doctrine of incarnation. Uh, this usually just kind of like, I've read through this my whole life, never really saw it, never really understood it. How many of you knew? How many of you know that when somebody's pregnant, it's because the man who has seed, and this generation doesn't understand this basic concept, but the man has the seed and the woman has the egg, right? And so together, um, they can procreate. And if the world keeps going in the direction it's going, then guess what? Only the sane ones We at Christ Nation hope you found this message meaningful. Have Please feel free to share it with anyone that you think needs to hear it. We hope you can join us soon Yet, for a Sunday experience. The coming one was to arrive for more information, please visit www.christnation.tv. Thank you. He was going and to God be born without a human father. Because the one who would crush the serpent's head was to come from the woman, and he'd be the woman's seed. Not from a man's seed, but from a woman without the man's seed. His father, of course, would be God himself. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. And then we see number eight. In Genesis, we see the type and shadow of a highly exalted Savior, an elevated Savior, one who is lifted up. 
and then saves everyone. In Joseph, we see the image of this coming Messiah. We see this image in Joseph as one who's lifted up, seated in the highest place with all authority. All authority was given to Joseph. Joseph is the most complete of all the personal types of Christ. After, you know, being humiliated, suffering, he was exalted to be the governor of all of Egypt. I want to just show you a quick synopsis of the comparison between Joseph and Jesus and see how Joseph actually um, is the portrait of a coming, the coming Savior, Jesus, who is the greater Joseph. First, you see that they were both, Joseph and Jesus both, were shepherds tending their father's sheep, Genesis 32, 37, 2, and John 10, 11. You see that they were both loved by their father, Genesis 37, 3, and Matthew 3, 17. They were both hated by their brothers. They were both sent by their fathers to their brothers who hated them. They both had their robes taken from them. They both were taken to Egypt. They were both sold for the price of a slave. They were both tempted. Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife. Jesus was tempted by Satan. They were both falsely accused. They were both bound in chains. Matthew 27, 2 says, And they bound him and led him, and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. They were both placed with two prisoners. Interesting, interestingly enough, one was saved and the other one was lost in both cases. Genesis 40, verse 2 and 3, Joseph was placed with a butler and the baker. One was saved, one was killed. And in Luke 23, 32, Jesus was hanging on the cross between two criminals. One was saved, the other one was lost. Both Joseph and Jesus were exalted after suffering. Joseph to the highest place in Egypt. Jesus with all authority in heaven and on earth as he's seated on God's right hand. They both forgave those who wronged them. Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, as he pointed to his brothers. You meant one thing, God meant another thing. Jesus said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In both cases, what men did to hurt them, God worked it for the good in order to establish his own purposes. So we see that in Genesis, that type and shadow of a highly exalted Savior. We also see number nine, finally in Genesis, the justice and the judgment of God on the wicked is revealed. The justice and the judgment of God on wickedness and sin is revealed. We see God punishes Cain for killing his brother Abel. We see the flood that comes and washes and sweeps everybody away and drowns the whole entire wicked world, save Noah and his family because God had mercy on them. We see fire and brimstone descend on Sodom and Gomorrah until nothing but ashes is left. We see Lot's wife 
For one act of disobedience turns to a pillar of salt. Her heart was in Sodom. So we see in the book of Genesis, and we can go on and on and on, but every major doctrine in Scripture is initiated and seeded in Genesis. And I'm amazed, Dad, when you remember the videos that I showed you last week of Christopher Hitchens and, and Hawking, Hawkins, Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, excuse me, how oftentimes people will look at Christianity, look at the Bible, especially Genesis, and they will get fueled with anger. The audacity of this creator, says his creation. <laughs> the audacity, says the clay to the potter. But it's only because we've seen this now. If you are in Christ, the veil is lifted from your eyes. The veil is lifted from your heart. And you can see the meaning of the Old Testament. But if you are outside of Christ, you have a veil over your eyes, you have a veil over your mind, and you will have a veil over your heart. You will look through all of that, and you couldn't see the genius in it. You go, well, I, I think it's all just rubbish. Well, yeah, the Bible says to the unregenerate man, the things of God are foolishness. So they look into this incredibly insightful, prophetic work of God. Knowing the end from the beginning, so obvious, it's so clear to you, isn't it? When you look at Genesis, can't you see what everything we just walked through, how it is true throughout scriptures? Yet they can see none of it because they're blind. How does somebody, how does a blind man see? Well, a miracle. That's how a blind man sees. You have family that do not see. You have neighbors that do not see, work associates that do not see. They open up the Bible, it's foolishness to them. Genesis is a, is a joke. Created the world in six days. <laughs> yeah, he did. How could you argue with everything else you see in scriptures? Well, you can't say, well, I see everything. Yeah, everything is fascinating. It's fasc Joseph is fascinating. Wow, it's fascinating how every single major doctrine in Scripture is actually seeded in Genesis. That is fascinating. But no, no, no. God couldn't have created the world in six days. Why not? Because how would He have done it? Well, the reason you ask how would He have done it is because you, you think that He is like you. That's why oh, He couldn't have done it. <laughs> You're trying to fit. Look, if your God can fit within your eight-pound brain, you got, your God's too small. Get another one. <laughs> so our walkaway points here for today is just to recognize what an incredible force of genius displayed in the authorship of the book of Genesis. Don't ever not read that book. Next time Andy Stanley says, throw away your Old Testament, honestly, pray for his salvation, will you? Unbelievable. Unhook from the Old Testament. It's no longer for us. That's Marcionism. And those people ought to be, those people ought, if we acted like the early fathers, that those people ought to be thrown outside of the church. The book of Genesis is life-changing, life-altering. It authenticates who Jesus really is. How do you know that you're not serving a fake Jesus? 
Well, I know. I know why my Jesus isn't fake. He fulfilled the Old Testament. <laughs> he fulfilled Moses. That's how I know he's the, he's the authentic Jesus. You ask them, how do you know your Jesus isn't, isn't an imposter? Well, they couldn't tell you because he loves. He must be real. No, no, no. It's because he fits within what we were just talking about here. Looking at the types, the shadows of Christ, looking at the gospel foretold, looking at the state of man, how accurate the Bible is when it identifies man's heart. Only a, only a secular humanist can believe, after looking at history, that man is good. <laughs> You've got to be blind to still believe that man is good. But looking at the types and the shadows, we see the gospel foretold. We see the state of man. We see the plan of God. We see all outlined thousands of years before it actually happened. And so we see his plan to save you has been from the beginning of time. As a matter of fact, he says it. He says that he chose you when? Before the foundations of the world. When people start arguing this idea when they start employing their secular humanist ideas and inserting it into, into Scripture or into Bible doctrine, <laughs> I always say to them, okay, so in Acts, it says that the apostles preached the gospel and all those who were appointed unto eternal life, they believed. So I have two questions. Who appointed them? God. Mm -hmm. Second question, when were they appointed? It says it before the foundation. Well, actually, case closed. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? There is no argument. There is no move beyond that move on the, on the chessboard. You cannot include man's efforts. You cannot include... Synergism, you can only believe in monergism. Synergism is two parts working together. Monergism is one part working all by himself. God has come to save you. His plan to save you has been from the beginning of time. God's sovereignty has been on display from the very start. There is no question your heavenly Father has the ability to work all things together for your good and for His glory. That means family. Trust Him. You can breathe deep and breathe out. Trust Him. He knows the end from the beginning. You can rely on Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just pray for Your Word, which is a seed that is sown into our hearts. Lord, that after today, we will have even a greater confidence in your ability to make things work out for the good, for our good and for your glory. That we can trust you, Father, with the future because you know the end from the beginning. Lord, that we know that you are a good God. We know that we have an authentic Jesus because he fulfills all things that were spoken thousands of years before he even showed up. 
Oh, we thank you, Father God, for reaffirming all the doctrines that you have called us to submit ourselves to believe and to preach. You solidified that by showing us those doctrines in seed form. I pray, Father God, that as we read through your word, that you will enrich every life, that you will cause our roots to shoot down deep into your soil, and that we will bear fruits 30, 60, and 100-fold in Jesus' mighty name. Because we know our lives matter in this way, that it glorifies you. Lord, rid us of any kind of secular humanism. Rid us, strip us of that, Father. Help us, Father, to see uh, with clear eyes and with sober minds the times in which we live. Help us, Father God that we will identify and recognize the work of the devil, the deceiver. And Lord, that we will always rid ourselves of secularism, of humanism, and that we will never bring, never come to the edge of paganism, not in our households, not with our children, no matter what the schools choose to do, no matter what this culture decides on, we will remain free because we are protected by your truth. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. Did you get something out of the word? Amen.